episode 154 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Cardiac Development and Disease, with Dr. Ramin Shakur. Hey everybody, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. But before we get to that, are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured on upcoming episodes of the podcast? You should check out our calendar. That's at stemcellpodcast.com slash calendar to find out detailed information about upcoming guests. Stay tuned for future episodes featuring Selena Giuliano, Eben Alsberg, Peter Zanstra, and more. Today, we have Dr. Ramin Shakur from MIT and the founder of Cambridge Heartware Limited on the podcast to talk about his research on modeling and understanding cardiac development using iPSCs. Also going to tell us about his tech. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming right up. But first... Did you know that you can model arrhythmias and cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? Why, yes. Yes, I did. That's kind of what I do. Watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited human pluripotent stem cell lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com slash cardio webinar. So I guess we'll jump right into it. Um... If you haven't heard by now, there's a uh, there's a pretty big paper that came out in Nature over the last week or so. It's uh, it's not a stem cell paper per se, but it's definitely got stem cell applications. It's a CRISPR paper. It's focusing on genome editing, and it's titled "Search and Replace Genome Editing Without Double-Stranded Breaks or Donor DNA." And all over the, the Twitterverse, everybody's referring to this as prime editing. Of course, this is what is, uh, is you know, what, what we're talking about, prime editing. And I just wanted to talk about this because, you know, everybody's talking about it on number one trending papers on PubMed. It's at the very top. It's, uh, it's important. It's an important piece of technology that's coming out of David Liu's lab over at the, the Broad Institute. David Liu is, of course, one of the, the big shots when it comes to genome editing and CRISPR in general. So David Liu is, of course, the mastermind behind base editing, which is another pretty prominent CRISPR-based technology whereby you can modify single bases in the genome. But this is really taking CRISPR one step further in this whole prime editing thing. And I'm not going to dive into the paper super in depth because it's not a stem cell paper, but I'll talk a, a little bit of how, you know, prime editing works. So the general idea is you have CRISPR-Cas9 and traditional CRISPR-Cas9, especially with SP-Cas9, is a, it's an endonuclease that basically conducts a double-stranded break at a target region in the genome, which is guided by an aptly named guide RNA, right? And everybody's been using CRISPR for almost, uh, you know, a few, half a decade now, and maybe more, to basically introduce genomic mutations that you're interested in, create point mutations, insertions, deletions. I've used it to make custom fluorescent 
IPS cardiomyocyte lines, which glow green, which I think is pretty cool. So it's really cheap and easy to use. And because of that, everybody's using it. But of course, CRISPR does have this issue. It's, it's not always super specific. And there are some off-target effects of traditional Cas9 as well. Of course, there are two kind of parallel pathways to using traditional CRISPR-Cas9. There's the non-homologous end-joining pathway, whereby you can basically use the error-prone non-homologous end-joining pathway to induce in, induce uh, insertions or deletions, uh, gene insertions or deletions into a target gene of interest. And that's relatively efficient. You know, it kind of depends on the cell line that you're working in, depends on the, the model system, depends on the target site and genome. But then there's this other pathway, this homology-directed repair pathway, traditionally known as HDR. And HDR is a little trickier, but it's probably the more powerful of the two pathways. HDR is the way you can actually introduce huge edits into the genome. Like if you want to do, like if you want to make those fluorescent cell lines that I was talking about, you've got to induce a double-stranded break first with Cas9, and then have a a repair template, a DNA repair template that you can use to actually introduce the edit that you want, okay? And the problem with HDR is that it's not always very efficient. You know, in iPSCs or really whatever cell type you're interested in, it's not always the most efficient pathway. And so there's a lot of interest in improving homology to direct repair and figuring out novel mechanisms, novel technologies that would enable you to make HDR better or, you know, get rid of HDR entirely. And so that's where prime editing comes into play. The, the idea is really ingenious. I think it's, it's, it's incredible. So basically what you're doing here is you have a version of the Cas9 endonuclease that is modified to become a nickase. So that, that means it's only nicking one strand of DNA as opposed to inducing the full double-stranded break, right? And Pretty much simultaneously with that NIC, you have a reverse transcription process that's occurring. So basically you have a Cas9 NICase fused to a reverse transcriptase that's being guided by a modified guide RNA called a PEG, guide, PEG RNA or uh, prime editing guide RNA. And the cool thing about this prime editing guide RNA is not only does it serve as a guide RNA to direct this fused Cas9 nickase uh, reverse transcriptase to a target site in the genome, but that guide RNA also serves as a template for reverse transcription. So at the same time you're targeting your Cas9 nickase to the site in the genome that you want to modify, you're gonna basically induce that nickase, and then with that guide RNA, you're going to reverse transcribe it, and that's gonna get that product is gonna get directly integrated into the genome. So it's an all-in-one editing modality. And in the paper, which is I I think they're the official final version of the paper is not online yet, but there's like an accelerated article preview, I guess, that's online because it's, I guess, such a such an important article. So they developed three different versions of prime editors, all that were slightly more improved in, their inter in terms of their ability to actually induce the edit that you want. They also looked at optimization of this PEG RNA, this prime editing guide RNA. 
they compared prime editing with traditional base editing. And the important thing with that is that traditional base editing, you can only have a, a few types of edits that you can do. But with prime editing, you can pretty much do all 12 different types of point mutations, all different types of insertions and deletions. And pretty much if you take it all together, it suggests that prime editing also induces lower off-target editing than uh, traditional Cas9. And in addition to that, they looked at editing in multiple cell lines using their prime editing uh, construct. They looked at your traditional HEC 293 cell lines. You looked at you know other cell lines as well. You're modifying common genes like HBB and HEX-A, VEGF. But they also looked at primary neurons. Primary cells are actually a lot tougher to modify, and especially if you want to do HDR, homology-directed repair, uh, it's a lot tougher to do that in primary cells. And they're able to show that you can get pretty decent prime editing uh, and in insertion of a mutation that you want in primary neurons, post-mitotic primary neurons, which I think is, is really powerful. So there are definitely caveats, and we have to discuss this, right? It's not an end-all. It's not going to – I don't think it's ultimately going to completely take over the field as of now because, for one, it's only been demonstrated to be really efficient in vitro. They didn't do a whole lot of in vivo work, and I don't, I don't actually think they did really in vivo work at all in this particular uh, paper. So that's something that needs to be done. I mean, obviously, if you want to talk about the translatability of this particular technology, you gotta, you got to focus on the in vivo as well, the mouse models and all that. But looking at folks on Twitter, people are definitely starting to try that, try the in vivo applications, some, you know, some mouse embryo editing. Um, the, the plasmids are available. They're available on AdGene, so you can go get your prime editing plasmids and do some prime editing within a week if you want, whenever you get the plasmid. So that's, uh, you know, that's one thing that we have to think about, the, the in vivo applications. But I think it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I think the data kind of speaks for itself. It's a, it's a quick, efficient way to modify DNA in you know, maybe in replacement of the homology-directed repair pathway. I think it's a nice bonus to the toolbox. It's another tool in the toolbox that we can use for CRISPR. And it's powerful in vitro, and we'll see if it works really well in vivo. This is nuts. You're, you're a little bit lukewarm on this. And the Twitterverse is bugging out, and you're just sitting there relaxing. Arun, you're, I thought you were part of the Twitterverse, my man. Come on. I am, I am part of the Twitterverse, for sure. But, you know, I think I'm not saying it's not a powerful technology. I mean, the application is it's there. It's, it's a replacement for HDR, which is not super efficient. And if you can have a better replacement, then, then that's great. But, you know, you have to take these things with a grain of salt, right? I mean, there's a lot of optimization that needs to be done. As I talked about, this is everything was shown in vitro. So the whole in vivo aspect is, is uh, you know, it's still in the wings. We got we to gotta wait for it. Oh, and the other thing, I was actually talking to somebody from, from, you know, from the Broad Institute and somebody who actually does a lot of CRISPR. And they're saying, you know, the size of this construct, the fact that you're fusing together a Cas9 nickase with a reverse transcriptase into one protein, that's that's huge. That's that's a that's a big construct. And if you want to introduce that for in vivo delivery, then that means your vector is you might have to have multiple vectors to actually introduce mm. the construct. So, 
so yeah, I'm on the Twitterverse. I kind of have an idea of what people are talking about when it comes to Prime editing. But, you know, I'm a genome editor. I do some CRISPR. So I know there's always a little bit of grain of salt that you have to take. You know, you have to take these things with a grain of salt. Cautious. Cautious, Arun. I respect that. But I have to say, this is so impressive to me. I've always thought the most brilliant thing you can do is take a couple things that are just lying around and put them together in a way that no one has anticipated. I think that's what Dr. Liu here did with the reverse transcriptase. Now, in retrospect, it seems obvious. Brilliant. We'll yeah. see, though. Like you said, it's about in vivo. We'll see what the cargo limits are, how, how big can, uh, a construct can you introduce. But like you said, if the Twitterverse is hot on it, then, you know, we got to take a look and, and pay attention this brings me to my story a little bit. You know, this is a story about comparative evolution a little bit and the implications in regeneration. And it gets me to thinking that maybe we could use these peg RNAs to introduce some of our cold-blooded relative DNA back into the mix so that we could regenerate our lost limbs or other appendages. Arun, I think that would be nice. This is a story It comes out of Mother Russia. They know what it is to be cold-blooded over there, that's for sure. But it's really about evolution, you know, the cis-regulatory elements of a gene network, right? The gene network, it's all the same genes, but evolution is thought to be driven by the fact that you shuffle those genes so that they're expressed at different levels or some are, you know, expressed in different orders. And it's thought that appendage, appendage regenerative capacity that isn't there in birds and mammals... Uh, compared to that capacity in, in fishes, amphibians, and reptiles, it may be because there has been this cis-regulatory element shuffling. But uh, Andrei Zorysky and his group uh, in Russia, they showed a little while ago, they showed that actually it's not just the shuffling, that there's actually genes that can be lost, that there's uh, a, a complex of genes with weird names that I'm not going to say, but that those are lost in... Uh, as you go from fishes and frogs up to birds and mammals, and they showed that this was in part underlies the loss of the regenerative capacity. So the idea here out of the lab was that maybe these aren't the only ones. Maybe there's a lot of genes out there that may underlie the regenerative capacity. It's been lost with the shift to warm-blooded animals. Um, and they wanted to find out if they could, you know, flesh those out, see, see what they were uh, using an algorithm, using a kind of AI approach uh, bioinformatics approach, they developed this program that performed a systematic search for these types of genes, genes that are differentially, uh, well, that are lost um, in warm-blooded uh, animals, birds and mammals that were present in fish and frogs and that may underlie this regenerative capacity. Uh, and they found that there is this, this predicted putative membrane protein called C-answer. I mean, when you see something in your array that says answer in it, you should pay attention because maybe that's what you're looking for. They show that this gene, in fact, it was, you know, putative. It's like, hey, this might be it. And not just because it's called the answer. It might be it for a lot of reasons that this algorithm thought. And then they went deeper and said, hey, let's see if it is. Uh, they looked just, you know, in terms of correlation, they found that it was sharply activated this gene in the cells of the wound epithelium one day after amputation of tadpole tail. So they did this all in Xenopus labus. Uh, that got me started in science. I love the frog. 
Xenopus labus tadpole tail and hind limb buds, they amputated them, showed that this gene was sharply activated. Then, using morpholino as well as CRISPR, they showed if you uh, knock down the gene or dysregulate it, you get diminishment of the overall tadpole size, particularly the eye size, and that's going to be relevant in a second. And you, of course, retard the, uh, the tail regeneration. And then the converse, if you overexpress the answer, you get uh, increase in the eye size. Ha-ha! So the reverse, including ectopic eye, which could be good for Halloween. But don't do this at home, kids. Um, also, restoration of tail regeneration in the so-called refractory period. Okay, this is a, a period when the tail normally can't regenerate, but if you put the answer in there, boom, you're regenerating. So, I mean, the authors here, they didn't go so far as to say, hey, we're going to be regenerating limbs and appendages. But they said, I think the conclusion here was that, you know, loss of this gene may have been part of the process that led to the loss of this regenerative capacity. But obviously the answer is, you know, uh, uh, the answer, the question about the answer is whether or not we can restore any regenerative capacity. I think it's a, it's not like they didn't try. I would think that they probably tried or maybe not, but someone out there is trying to overexpress the answer in mammalian cells and see if they can restore some regenerative capacity. And I can't wait to see the answer to that answer experiment. How about you, Arun? Well, it's always kind of the goal of regenerative medicine, right, is to be able to regrow organs, regrow limbs. And, you know, I think certain animals are more amenable to that, like, you know, zebrafish, which I think you're going to talk about in a little bit. And, you know, the axolotl, however you pronounce that, <laughs> is uh, is another animal that's pretty amenable to regeneration. You know, I didn't know that you were so you were into Xenopus, Xenopus back in the day. You yeah, know, it's uh, it's a fun model organism. As you know, my the developmental biologist in me, you know, just the love loves Xenopus. It's such a powerful system, and you know, I wish more people were into it. You know, it's it's so powerful, right? So many screens you can do. What was it like to, to work with uh, Xenopus back in the day? It's not actually something that I've actually worked on myself. All it takes is to look at it, Arun. That's the key. You know why it got me into science? It brought me into science because I just saw the process. You look at a, a, a egg become a free-swimming tadpole in 36 hours. That's it. And you see it. You look at it in pond water. It happens, right? It's so easy. You squeeze out hundreds of eggs out of these frogs. It makes science seem easy and beautiful. And then you get to mammals and you want to kill yourself, Arun. <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, do you think more folks should... Uh should use Xenopus? Do you think there's kind of been a shift away from Xenopus? Well, like what? I think, you know, it, it gives you a really basic perspective. But my mentor, Ali Brivanlu in graduate school, he really had, I think, the ticket, which was, let's cut to the chase. Let's get right to human development. Xenopus is nice to understand systems, but, you know, if we're interested in the human, we're lucky enough, Arun, now to be living in the age where we can look at human development in a dish. So let's cut to it. Absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of the paper I'm going to talk about next, which is uh, another nature letter. It's uh, titled Organoid Single Cell Genomic Atlas Uncovers Human-Specific Features of Brain Development. So we're talking about development in a dish, right, just now. So one way you can look at that in a human-specific context is use da-da-da organoids, of course. <laughs> Everybody's using organoids, right? But I thought this was a, a neat approach to organoids. This is 
using human brain organoids in combination with chimpanzee and non-human primate organoids to to look at evolutionary biology and kind of have to give us an idea of how we differ when it comes to development in different primate species. So of course we've done, you know, bulk genomic measurements and in, in brain tissues from adult humans, chimps and other apes and in, including like rhesus macaque for example. And we've identified features that are specific to the the human brain. But the problem, of course, is you can't always have a ton of brain tissue to work with. It's, it's tough to obtain this. A lot of times you have to have post-mortem tissue, right? So the thought is you can use cerebral organoids as a, as a way to kind of bridge the gap. And this could be your developmental analog, not only for human development, but also non-human primate development. And so what, folk, what these folks were able to do, this is the, the group of Jay Gray Camp at the uh, – the Max Planck Institute, I believe, over over in overseas in Europe. So what these folks were able to do was to basically create brain organoids from both humans and from non-human primates and do a bunch of single-cell RNA-seq to actually see what's different over the course of development in, in brain organoids from multiple species. They also did single-cell ATAC-seq. They, uh, I actually didn't know you could do single-cell ATAC-seq, I think that's pretty cool. ATAC-seq is a way by which you can basically look at the chromatin accessibility at different points in the genome. And so they're able to uncover that there are some human-specific changes in gene expression that might be specific to certain cell states in the developing, developing human forebrain. And they looked at, you know, uh, neuroprogenitor cells, neurons, and they're actually able to find in their ATAC-seq results that between 7 and 9% of accessible peaks showed increased and decreased accessibility in humans, respectively. So this is giving us an idea of what might be different in terms of gene accessibility when it comes to humans and non-human primates, right? Uh, I think the, the cool thing about this, this is a developmental paper that's incorporating evolutionary biology. And it's showing that we start to diverge as species, potentially, very early on during development. So it's a it's a cool system that you can use to to evaluate that. And I'm actually surprised that more people haven't haven't really utilized this, utilized organoids in the context of evolutionary biology. I think mm. it's a it's a neat application. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, organoids and single cell seek, you got me there. Put it in nature with all the tech in this one. But I mean, it's, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to undersell the amount of work that this takes, you know, just getting your hands on all these different systems to work with and getting the expertise, you know, you take it for granted. It's like, yeah, we started with organoids, but getting there was a, a major feat. So uh, kudos to these guys. No, for sure. And the other thing is, you know, when it comes to actually making IPSCs from different species, it's it's not like it's easy. I, I have a friend overseas who tries to make IPSCs from rhino <laughs> and, you know, for, for the purposes of conservation. And it's it's tough, you know, like everything's been optimized for human mm. or mouse or rat in some circumstances. But if you want to make IPSCs from these different species, it's it's tricky. So, you know, respect to these folks. Respect, and I'm waiting to see those rhino organoids, all right? Get a lead on that for me, will ya? <laughs> Getting for sure. away from the tech, 
And into your neighborhood, Arun, I'm going to talk about the cardiac. Ha ha, I got a cardiac story this day, and you didn't, sucker. This one is about the zebrafish you alluded to. We're talking about regeneration a little bit today. We're talking about genome editing and what's lost and what's gained. We're talking about it all, and this is, you know, the heart of it. Today we're going to talk to Ramin Shakur about the heart. And uh, at the heart of the matter here is that the heart is a big problem. Cardiovascular disease, it kills the most people, right? And uh, the real deal with the heart attack is that after a heart attack, you get millions of, millions of functional cardiomyocytes that are irreversibly lost. And uh, what do they become? They become this fibrotic scar that's essentially useless and a liability that doesn't go away. And it just leads to a slow and sad death. Uh, with heart failure, essentially. So there's a big need, right? And it's unmet. And everybody's throwing the kitchen sink at it, and we haven't really gotten that far therapeutically while we understand a lot, Arun. No fault to you. You're doing your work, my man. I'm trying, man. I'm trying. (laughs) You're doing. But there's, you know, something we can learn from the lower organisms here. This is uh, in zebrafish, well, in in humans, there's been a lot, there's been so many resources dedicated to just seeing if there's an adult stem cell in the human, in the human heart. And there's been a lot of fraud and there's been a lot of resources allocated to kind of correcting the misinformation out there. But we've known for a long time that zebrafish are able to, they have this extraordinary capacity for heart regeneration, and this is what kind of gave us hope leading into the heart field. If the fish can do it, why can't we? Well, it's pretty complicated. Uh, The lineage tracing studies in fish, you know, which are legion, have ultimately, I think, converged on this idea that there's uh, existing cardiomyocytes that are the origin of the de novo cardiac muscle. So it's it's a terminally differentiated cell there, the cardiomyocyte, that then kind of reverts to a more immature phenotype, expresses a lot of developmental genes, and becomes this more embryonic-like cardiac progenitor, right? And while we understand that there is this whole shift in gene expression in these cells as they revert to that immature state, it's not really clear, and this is the big gap, we don't really know that if, are there cardiomyocyte subsets in the uninjured heart that will then, you know, can we identify them in the normal heart? So that'd be like a putative stem cell marker. That's what we don't know. All right, so let's move to SOX10. SOX10, it's this neural crest marker, which gotten a lot of attention um, in recent years because it's been shown that in related studies looking at neural crest, they showed that there was a contribution of these SOX10 cells also to the zebrafish heart developmentally. Right? And also that you need them. If you ablate these SOX10 positive cells, uh, you get incorrect heart development. So you need them for correct heart development. But we don't know. Are they directly differentiating the cardiomyocytes in, you know, wholesale in large part? Or is it just that you need this subset because it induces cardio? It's involved in you know, kind of the inductive events underlying cardio- cardiogenesis. So SOX10 was the focus of this study by Nadia Mercader from the Spanish National Center for Cardiovascular Research. Um, And what they did essentially was look into SOX10, lineage trace, see what their capacity was for proliferation and differentiation. They found that the embryonic SOX10 cells, they contributed to a significant proportion of the adult heart. Uh, They also found that there's an adult SOX10 positive cardiomyocyte, and that if you injure the heart, that population 
it expands to a higher degree and also contributes significantly to the cardiac regeneration there in the zebrafish, all right? Um, and the, they have a different transcriptome as well. So it's kind of a unique transcriptional cell with its functional capacity. It's unique from other cells in the heart. And finally, in this study, they show that if you ablate this population prospectively, you get impaired recovery from cryo injury of the heart. So this is a kind of, a, you know, going back to the previous story I talked about evolutionary and kind of tying in with your comparative evolutionary approach with the organoids is this idea here. We're looking at the heart in fish, we're looking at the heart in mammals, there's this SOX10 population. Is this a putative stem cell population in the adult heart in mammals as well? That just is unrecognized? Does SOX10 have a role in the a latent role in the adult heart? Or could you, maybe using your PEG RNAs, if you were to overexpress or ectopically express SOX10 post-MI, could you induce regeneration? These are the questions, Arun, I think that will be forthcoming. Hopefully we'll have the answers soon and have some handle on how we're going to handle uh, heart disease. This is the dream, right? I mean, this is, you know, you said Xenopus is part of the reason that you got into developmental biology. Zebrafish is actually the reason why I got into stem cell biology and developmental biology, right? Because I saw the work of Ken Poss, who's uh, one of the big zebrafish heart guys over at Duke. And I saw the work that, you know, you can basically cut off like a third of the zebrafish ventricle and it's going to grow back. Like, just imagine, just imagine if you could harness that power for, for human regenerative biology, right? You, you know, you, you might not even have to worry about like heart transplants anymore. So it's definitely the dream. And I think it's cool to see, you know, paper, papers like this kind of have a, a more of a mechanistic understanding as to why zebrafish and even like neonatal mice. Did you know that neonatal mice have a really high regenerative capacity when it comes to their heart? So it's not just zebrafish. Like mammals have that ability too, but for some reason we lose it over the course of development. It's, it's really cool to think about. You know, it's really cool to me that we both found our roots in science in cold-blooded animals. And here we are in the warm-blooded realm. How lovely. So just in time for Halloween, if you want to see beating heart cells in a dish, you can totally do that. And if you work with human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes, you can use stem cells, stem diff, cardiomyocyte media, and supplements to differentiate, enrich, expand, and cryopreserve functional human pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes. Stem diff cardiomyocyte media is compatible with human embryonic stem and induced pluripotent stem cells. And the resulting cardiomyocytes can be used for disease modeling, drug discovery, and cardiotoxicity screening. All the good stuff. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash stemdiff-cardio. All right, everyone. Now it's time for the interview segment of the Stem Cell Podcast. And this week, we have Dr. Ramin Shakur. Dr. Shakur is the Janssen Fellow in Cardiology and Personalized Medicine at the Koch Institute for Integrative Science at MIT. He's also the founder of Cambridge Heartware Limited. By way of his training, he's done his MD at the University of Edinburgh and his PhD at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute, where he focused on using iPSCs to model inherited cardiomyopathies. 
He's a clinician scientist, and his academic research focuses on modeling and understanding cardiac development using iPSCs. Insights from his basic and clinical research spurred the development of a startup, Cambridge Hardware Limited, a medical device and algorithm company that actually uses AI and computer science for cardiovascular health. So Dr. Shakur, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you, Arun, and a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's get right into it. So why don't we uh, give our listeners a, a more deep overview of uh, what your lab is currently working on. So um, I'm very much interested on the interface between how we uh, use our great understanding of stem cell biology mechanistically, in particular in cardiovascular development and in health and in disease, and to say, where are the transition points to understand that in a systems biology, but also in a systems physiology perspective? I want to bring the two together so that we can have definitive uh, outputs for translational needs in our patients. So, yeah, I mean, that's a, a mouthful for sure. But, I mean, we're going to range through all that, and I think there is a lot to unpack there. But let's just start with, the, you know, one of your more recent exploits. A uh, company started Cambridge Hardware, which provides low-cost, next-generation wearable heart monitors and uses AI to diagnose heart rhythm and respiratory problems in real time. How did that come about? So that's an interesting point. So what happened was during my uh, PhD uh, in Cambridge, what I was working on is essentially how do we better understand the transcriptomic proteomic uh, interplay in cardiac development. And as I was using the human IPS model, we had gotten pretty good like most labs to in terms of the differentiation, uh, getting robust differentiation and trying to model that as effectively as we could for the diseases that I was interested in and still am. Those diseases in my field are electrophysiological, uh, sort of the induction of VTVF, ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, the those sudden cardiac deaths uh, related syndromes, and those are usually seen in the cardiomyopathies, in, uh, where you get genetic causes such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy mainly. And what was becoming clear to me was uh, we were getting very good, still am, that we're able to answer some of the fundamental basic questions about what are the mechanistic triggers for this that we're seeing on the cell. And we were getting pretty hot on how are we putting all of these multifactorial biological signaling cascades to initiate what we see on the dish. Yet when I looked at my patients, that one sort of problem came about, which is I don't actually know some fundamental things about us from a physiological perspective, which is when are you getting uh, these apparitions of palpitations or sudden um, uh, electrophysiological problems. We, we didn't have a diagnostic system to hand. Now, we have what's known as the archaic halter monitoring, uh, which will surprise you that I almost called it like an octopus stuck onto your chest. Hmm. Right? And, I, and it just surprised me that in the 
feel that we had become so advanced, we were talking about AI, we were talking about single cell, why do I still have to prescribe this to my patients? You've got an octopus stuck onto you for 24 hours, three days, you come back, you on an SD card, and then it's analyzed by a technician, analyzed by me and colleagues, and we say, oh, you know what? Were you having lunch? Because there seems to be an abnormality there, right? And this process is not uh, a developing world or a developable problem. It's a global issue, right? It doesn't matter if you're in Mass General or you're in Cambridge or you're in, in developing world. The issue is that's the best we can do for now. And what I wanted to understand is, look, I'm getting to a point where we can better understand those initiating cues at a cellular level, at a molecular signaling level, yet I don't know when is this change in rhythm happening. I'll give you a simple example. We were the first uh, to actually use the uh, HeartSense device to say what actually happens when sprinters hold their breath and they're doing a 100-meter sprint, right? That whole metabolic change and demand no one's really looked into what's happening at that speed. And the reason is because we don't have the ability to see it in what I mean as real time, because I want transmission of that data. And the second point was that data was very noisy. We used a lot of noise cancellation in the past, but how do we archive and reflect on that data? And how do we use that for physician assistance? And so, what we really wanted to get out, and I was sort of surprised when I sort of spurned this idea, I said to my colleagues in engineering in Cambridge, and I said, oh, I'm sure you guys will come up with this because this is what we need. And I was just surprised to say, how come the big medical device companies haven't sorted this out, right? Like, this should have been the first thing you do. You're giving me amazing new leads for pacemakers, leads for defibrillators, how come I just don't have a simple wearable which is giving me multi-leads immediately at all times and, you know, ergonomic to the patient? Hmm. And this is the most silliest point. How is it that every medical device company has devices specifically for one gender, right? I mean, they sort of miss the fact there are a few anatomical differences. Hmm. And so this octopus is clearly not suited for every sort of uh, gender differences because we have to contend with that. And so that's what spurned me on. And because of my surprise, I thought, well, some engineering clever clogs was going to figure this out. When I realized no engineering clever clogs has figured this out, I said, okay, I remember being good at Lego one of my years back in the day. I remember playing with basic electronics um, at, uh, even at university. And I said, there is a garden um, shed that we had. And I said, I can either spend my time constructively or annoy my wife. So I said, <laughs> I'll spend it constructively and essentially built what we have was our first prototype using just simple connections. And then I said to my colleagues in um, the tech uh, sort of transfer, I said, look, this is clearly working. I'm getting great ECGs. And you know what? I could easily tell you this. Again, my surprise is, look, I don't have any background in sort of raising anything in terms of funding. I said, this is where you take over. And this, again, intrigued me. You know, 
the support to say, uh, this is the sort of thing Medtronic should be doing. I think you should leave it to Medtronic. And I said, well, if Medtronic aren't doing it, what, what, what should I do? Hmm. And that was my impetus to say, you know what? There has to be time where if this is clearly working, we show the engineering. I got a lot of support from my uh, computer science colleagues in Cambridge, uh, Professor Roberto Capola, who is a real um, lead in image processing and uh, information processing. We were having lunch and I said, you know what, this is a problem where I'm getting all this data. That's a too much data. I would not even want you to predict what's going on. I'd just like you to highlight and just curate so that it's easier for me to diagnose. And, and then hence, it would give me some reassurance to say some of the biological points that we're making inferences for have relevance to what I'm seeing physiologically. And so here we are a couple of years down the road. Um, it's doing very well. It's based in Cambridge Science Park. Um, it's won Fast Company's 2019 World Changing Ideas. It's won uh, the British Digital Awards for Best Emerging Tech, Best Innovation. And I'm thinking, that's a pretty amazing garden shed. I should have done this way back. Uh, so I don't know what happened, but I, I guess we're lucky at this. <laughs> so Dr. Shakur, it seems like a big benefit of the technology is its accessibility. And it seems kind of representative of, you know, like a flattening of the healthcare space, right? So you can have diagnostics and monitoring being extended to anybody really with the cell phone, it seems like these days. So, but ultimately, you know, it comes down to the user, right? So what are the users in these situations? What can they actually do with this information? Great question, Naren. And the user in this case has to be aware of what am I trying to find out? This isn't a Fitbit, okay? I'm not gonna tell you how many steps you're doing and how that, what we're trying to understand is there are specific heart rate changes, which we've been very good at monitoring. Uh, no plugs here, but there are a lot of uh, watches that do that. But in essence, what we don't have is, if I go to the ER and say, oh, I think I've got a palpitation, we need to capture that. And I need to capture that with a very high sensitivity and specificity for you to now come into the ER and say, I'm now going to put you on telemetry. Okay. That level of confidence we needed to go over some engineering hurdles, which I'm really proud of actually that we managed to get over them, which is how do I get transmission, which is not delayed. So in essence, we've done this in trials. I'm sat here in Boston looking at the ECG from people in the north of England, and they're like, it's happening, and I said, you're just running up and down, I can just see that now. And that delay is 0.5 of a millisecond, okay? Mm. And what that allows us to do is to better timestamp, actually better understand the circadian variations that are occurring in human physiology, in terms of an electrophysiological point, but also to give freedom and be realistic to say, Although I say to most patients, take the halter monitor, wear it. Well, it's interesting, no, well, well over 40% of people don't wear it when they should be wearing it. They're like, oh, oh, I can't wear this. I'm going into the shower. Oh, I'm going to run for the bus. Maybe I shouldn't wear it. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's exactly when you should be wearing it. And so the rationale here for the patient is to better understand and to help them to get across this idea that, you know, 
we are coming to an age in medicine and science where, you know, if everything was uh, able to be diagnosed through Google, I'd be out of a job. Hmm. But the reality is, you know, we don't have that training um, in terms of, you know, normal patients who don't have that training to say, oh, this is a textbook example of palpitations and atrial fibrillation. I mean, if that was the case, this would be easy. The reality is you are getting a lot of symptoms which are personalized and almost bespoke to you. And it is our job to tease out all of the different words. Some people, for example, I'll give you an example, Arun. Well, we did a very interesting study almost five, six years ago now, looking at what is the perception of ischemic heart disease, right? Everybody knows in Hollywood and on films, you say, oh, crunching, oh, I hear the pain. And they're just, that. that's it. The reality is there are people, and this has actually been proven in other studies, um, and uh, there was a study, it's particularly in, done in East London, which showed perception in different communities is different for heart attacks. Some people are saying, I got a pretty bad stomachache. Now, that's not the classical symptoms, okay? But that perception, the formation of referred pain are physiological points that we know about for many years. And we've not really been able to tease that out. And what the device was really meant to do is to say, let's stop with the different vocabulary and look at what does the data actually show. In your own words, use the uh, device over a time to basically go about your daily business and almost disregard the fact that there is a recording going on. And, and we've found in a lot of patients, they, don't, they often forget, especially we found when we did our human factors trials, females really say that, oh, I didn't even notice this, right? And that was a big positive for me because I felt that we are addressing uh, some major misconceptions in med tech. There's some big points in med tech, which is, you know, if you look at most of our engineers, we have a diversity issue. So we're not engineering for the whole population. Hmm. We're not discussing these points. And so I think it was to readdress that balance and to really understand for me from a clinical and biological perspective to do justice to the patients that we're trying to serve. Yeah, I mean, you said this is not a Fitbit, uh, and it got me thinking. I was just been on vacation with my wife. We were in France and running around, and a big part of the day is we look on our activity at the end of the day on our on our smartphones. No plugs here, um, except for Fitbit, I guess. Fitbit's making money off us, Ramin. But um, I mean, look at the phone. We say, I have oh, we to get... give it a check. <laughs> get you a kickback. Um, but we'd look and we'd see our steps. We'd see our miles and all that stuff. And we we're all proud of ourselves. Um, and you're saying oh, these things are miniaturized and women aren't even noticing them. And it's inevitable, I would assume, that we could have something where you just have routine monitoring of your heart, even in people of normal health. Is that, you know, but you kind of also alluded to that you don't have the sophistication to understand what any of it means. Is there a way that this could feed forward in a positive way for people of normal health and the kind of the way that the, the activity tracking has, you know, is it a way that you can get people, incentivize them or motivate them to, to live a more healthy life just by giving them the information about what's going on in their heart? I mean, this is uh, the utopian dream that we've been searching for, right? We want to go to preventive medicine. 
I'll tell you where we used the device. Last year, when we had the Cambridge-Oxford boat race, the oldest boat race in the world, we actually supported the Cambridge rowing crew with our devices. And it was there to help them to say, you guys are doing some pretty intense work, hmm. certainly a lot more than me going to uh, the shops. How do we give you maximum cardiac efficiency for the limited energy value that you have? And I don't want to take credit for this, but I'm not going to take credit for it. But <laughs> I'd like to think the fact that they beat Oxen by a pretty big record was because they had trained hard. And the fact that, you know, we're having a better understanding of what that means in terms of the data coming through. What we're doing now is... Uh, really interesting where I can't tell you immediately because we didn't have that data till this device to say prior to you going to sleep what are those small ectopics mean okay when you probably had a few glasses of wine when you're with your wife in France while she were walking <laughs> what does that really mean okay what, what, what does that really mean you, you were drinking having a good time fine we get that you never noticed any symptoms okay for you Oh, was that a bottle of rouge? You got excited. Fine. Okay. And then you said, oh, I finished it. Then you came down. That is the basics that we know currently just on heart rate. What's happening to the rhythm? I'm interested in what mm. is the rhythm changes. Now, mm. what we've done uh, here, and that's really intrigues me. That's the real interesting point, taking the biology background that I have and sort of the systems biology and physiology background. I'm now able to decipher that single beat into almost 3,000 individual timestamp signals. So that whole single beat has now been deciphered out. And what the AI is now doing is not just saying, oh, look, that one beat and the other beat, they look similar. We want to get on to the next generation of AI, which is unsupervised learning, and to understand what do we mean within that segment is there any sort of pattern trends that are developing? Pattern trends that are personalized. I don't want to get across this feeling that it should be bespoke for you because there are racial differences, there are age, sex differences that we don't know about. And I really want to learn that because, you know, we're making so many strides. We're doing some of the work here on the IPS cells, modeling and coming up with possible novel targets. Yet I don't know what's the difference between you and your wife hmm. as you're walking across, looking at the same and thinking, wow, this is amazing. We, we just don't have that data. Well, one, one back end of that, you know, also I noticed when I was driving my silly little car on their silly little roads, no offense, France, but they're tiny <laughs> roads. But uh, is that we couldn't have found our way around to save our life without the GPS. Is there any back end there, any downside to the whole AI? Like in this case, I could envision maybe that like cardiologists just aren't going to be as good because they don't have to be. But there's probably more to that that I'm just not anticipating. Is there anything you can imagine that there'd be some negative uh, impact of just the, the slaving all the monitoring to these computer systems? Yeah, so I, I think we're seeing uh, more and more of that. If you look at some of the uh, other systems, which are single lead systems that we have, um, some watch manufacturers have this, okay? And when they are saying, look, this is possibly a pathology of some note, uh, 
we can't verify that because of the simple reason that you and I all know, being uh, in the scientific field, we need replicates and robust data. Okay, just saying because oh, there's a blip, and I have no way of actually comparing, confounding that data makes it extremely difficult. I mean, that's why we have all these leads, right? We're trying to look at that same beat across the heart and looking what is essentially the difficulty there is between what is normal, what is pathological, and what is physiological normal for that person, we have to tease out. And I can only know that when there I have multiple leads to look at, multiple sections in that temporal spatial point, which we're doing. I mean, we're doing that. When we looked at transcriptomics, proteomics of a lot of these uh, IPS cells, we're doing that, right? Why can't we do that with ECG? Because that's where I really want to get to. And uh, uh, I hope none of my board are listening, but essentially the device was to really take on this amazing advances that we've made in stem cell biology. It really excites me. Why are we not applying that from our physiological understanding, mm. right? It's just like that sort of whole specter. And I know you guys do it as well. When you write the grants, there's that little paragraph at the end. Oh, yeah. And this will have clinical application. <laughs> okay. And I'm saying, let's be honest. Do we really know what the clinical application is? Because we don't even know what the basic physiology is in a lot of cases. So let's be honest and say, if I were able to take all of that immense power of the data that we're getting, we're producing, and certainly uh, my interest in our lab is essentially looking at you know novel targets, novel uh, drug therapies, repurposing drugs, understanding the, the cell signaling pathways better, and I can't tell you what the difference is between uh, person A and person B, same age group, same sex, but have different sort of ECGs. Why is that? What were the factors? What are those physiological factors? And I think now is the time before we get a huge imbalance between the biology and physiology that we need to address this. And I hope these sort of technologies allow us to do that better. As a side note, I find it amusing that Daylon is talking about AI and big data because obviously he's such a technology-oriented <laughs> guy, right? I've been trying to get him on Twitter for like the last month, and that's not been going too well. But anyways, Arun, moving. stop hazing me, bro. I'm just trying to live my life offline. We'll get there, Daylon. We'll get there. Okay, it's only been a month or two. So, anyways, so moving on, you've had the chance to to work with some giants in the field, both at Cambridge and also at Cambridge, right? Both in the UK <laughs> oh, yeah. and back in Boston, right? Yeah. So you worked under Bob Langer at MIT, who's really a pioneer when it comes to all things drug delivery, tissue engineering, and translational biology. He's really like a world leader when it comes to bioengineering and applying bioengineering to regenerative medicine and stem cell biology. So what's it been like to, to work with Dr. Langer and work in his lab as somebody who also wants to translate basic discoveries in biology and cardiovascular biology to the bedside? I mean, uh, it's funny you should mention that, Arun. I just met Bob just before I came into the room on the list, and I said, Bob, I've got to do my first podcast. Never done a podcast. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, and he's like, I am really, um, I would say, blessed that we had so much support from some of the giants in the field. Uh, you know, Bob 
has been a, a bit of a hero for me for a while because here we have someone who really, you know, really gives a lot of confidence for young researchers like ourselves, like me especially, where we're saying no question is out of bounds. We're trying to use those questions, but e have those questions at a translatable level is his real goal. And I find that amazing how every day, you know, he is able to catch up with all of the amazing science and say, oh, this must be great for your patients, right? This must be, and, and that is really inspiring. He is very supportive and he, and, you know, I've been very, like I say, very blessed to uh, have his sort of mentoring through that process. Um, and, you know, as we see so many um, points in the biology field, to really have someone who can take a step back, and I think he's extremely good at that, he can take a step back and say, this is confusing biology. This is biology that is pretty tricky. What is the salient point here? And I've really learned from that and to understand and focus on that a lot. And, you know, a lot of my formal training came from... Um, Ludovic Valier's lab uh, in Cambridge, he at uh, the MRC stem cell unit. Um, I was also uh, mentored by Derek Stemple, who worked a lot on zebrafish. And so the whole uh, development biology and sort of stem cell um, applications I really learned from Cambridge, I had the opportunity to enhance that with some of our now um, genome editing techniques going back a few years in church lab when I came uh, during uh, the end of my PhD. And so I've been sort of surrounded by these people where I'm just, I'm totally amazed that they have new ideas constantly. They are able to take those ideas, but also have the end goal at near. So I've, I've been really um, uh, a good sort of, uh, probably a good exponent of the fact that, you know, it is possible to have uh, clinicians and scientists who can speak roughly the same language. I'm not saying hmm. you can speak all the same language. Uh, Daylon's laughing. At it. Okay. <laughs> but I think most of the time you can speak. Yes. It's language. like, to me, it's like Portuguese and Spanish. It's like similar, <laughs> similar languages, but still sometimes indecipherable. Um, you talk about uh, Bob Lang, you know, famously, he, he, there's the volume of patents that come out of the Langer lab. It's famous, right? Yeah. Uh, and I know a guy that came out of the lab, uh, and this may be totally apocryphal, so I'm sorry, Dr. Langer, I'm not saying this is your philosophy, but this guy who came out of Langer, I'm not even going to name him because he's probably going to get put on, on the uh, skewer for this, but he said that, <laughs> the, 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 that Dr. Langer is quoted as saying something like, first you get the patent, then you get the result, then you write the paper, or something like that. And I mean, just the point being there, I think, and I wouldn't reduce him so much to say that he just, you know, is fly by night throwing ideas out there with patents, but I think the idea there is that the primacy of the, the securing the IP, right? And I, I just want to know what your take and your philosophy on that, uh, having come out of the lab, how do you feel about, like, the importance of of IP and, and more, less IP than commercialization. How important do you think commercialization is in, in science and medicine? It seems to be what the, the major focus uh, nowadays, uh, where in the younger scientists, whereas before I feel like, you know, a lot of the premier scientists would say they were above it, 
you know, or maybe that was the idea. What's your take on that? I mean, uh, I have to say, Dylan, I, that's not been my understanding with uh, Bob. I mean, it, it's always been about show me the data and then let's talk afterwards. Mm. Um, so, I, I mean, different topics, uh, different subject fields, because he's banned so many different subject fields, right? I mean, and but in my insistence with him, certainly with the work that we've done, and Bob has always been about get the paper, get the science out, show robust data. The reason, if you're asking my own personal opinion about why this whole concept of commercialization has come about, is I'm using my own example. If the technology transfer uh, units at a lot of our premier institutions did even a bit more of a job in saying, look, Ramin, we just don't think this is a hair-bearing idea. We might even give you some support. I wouldn't have to take it upon myself to make a company like Cambridge Albert. This, I mean, this is not my job, hmm. to be frank with you. right? I didn't know anything about uh, how to develop a company. Right? I just wanted to have something because the reality of the world is nowadays, Daylon, is we would love to have enough funding from our sponsors to do the science and to develop. And you know the current funding squeeze that we're just sort of so squeezed just to do the science. People are sort of looking at the commercial aspects and are thinking, yeah, but so what? Hmm. And the yes, but so what is a better way of saying, look, I don't think you have to be a unicorn company, but I think you need to uh, reflect by why it's important. For me, it was important because I didn't see any of the big tech manufacturers to do this, right? They should have been doing this. Mm -hmm. They should have, I should have just said to them, hey, let's just use this device. Let's pool our data from the physiology. And we've got this amazing biological outputs. We should be able to integrate. No one was doing it. Okay, and I, if you look at certainly the companies that Bob has spawned, it is because of that need. No one else was doing it. No, someone had to do it. Whether they're commercially successful or not, I don't think um, is is the main output when we're coming in from a scientific perspective or from a clinical perspective. Our goal and my own personal goal has always been: this is technology which is accessible, should be equitable to all and we should utilize it for scientific use now i cannot wait for the big tech firms to take you know what give me a, a decade and we'll figure it out i i need it today i needed it yesterday and so some instances i found you know running a lab not much different from running a company right it's just super focused people i'm just so lucky that in our uh, branch in Cambridge, you have very focused individuals who know the output, many of whom have had friends or family. I mean, heck, we're talking about heart disease here, right? We're talking about heart disease, cardiovascular disease, the biggest killer in the world. They have friends, family say, I know what it's like. How come you don't have anything to do with that? I think people get that buy-in for the same reasons that you and I were we're all in the stem cell field because we want to apply that biology, have the curiosity to understand the basic science and mechanisms, but so we can better understand ourselves. And I think this just reflects back on we don't really understand the whole of our physiology, and it's about time we did. I think. Hmm. So I think part of that is you know, 
integrating multiple data sets, right? We're kind of at a golden age in modern biology where we can be super interdisciplinary. And, you know, Dr. Langer is a great example of that. And since you're a student of his, even your own expertise ranges from stem cell biology to clinical cardiology to bioengineering all over the place. And it's a, it's a huge range of things that, you know, both of you are able to do. So I think, you know, science as a whole has become pretty in, interdisciplinary. And I'm a big fan of integrating, you know, a bunch of different skill sets during your training process. If you're able to pick up, you know, genome engineering, pick up stem cells, you know, I think that's going to make you a better scientist down the road. But I think, you know, there, there's two sides of that coin, right? There's folks who definitely take one topic and take a super deep dive into that one topic over the entirety of their careers. So what do you think? What do you think is the right way to do it? Do you think we should be multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary? Or do you think there's still value to having, you know, even in the modern era to stay super laser focused on a single topic? I mean, that's a great question, Arun. I think the, um, I was just um, uh, emailing uh, Sir Peter Ratcliffe. I did my clinical training in Oxford and I was his houseman. And I emailed him and said, Prof, congratulations. I guess you'll be pretty busy. We should catch up. Do you remember who I am? And I was like, yeah, of course I am. You're the houseman, right? <laughs> and I was I'm like, I said, exactly. But what's interesting here, we have an example of a clinician science of Peter, uh, what Peter Ratcliffe has done, who say, really tease out mechanistically what is going on in terms of hypoxia. But even if you look into that, that hypoxia, HIF-1 alpha, master regulator, was very key in establishing HIF and hypoxia in the cancer field. Now, since then, we have been moving away from that more and more where we've talked about HIF-2, HIF-3, we've talked about non-HIF-related uh, perturbations and what that means. Does it mean that we don't have an understanding of it? I think it requires both camps to make it work, right? You need people who can see and they're super focused and they do that one in, in a project and that is very, very important for our fundamental understanding. Similarly, I, I would include myself in that group where I say we're still in the biology field. It's just we're now moving away where I think we need as biologists to have more tools than we had ever before, right? We, we, these are all tools. Genome editing before, you know, that was like, oh, you only need to go to a specialist lab. Only church lab can do this, or you know, Langer lab is able. To... Now it is. It just, it's in our toolbox, right? IPS cells. It's on our toolbox, and the more tools we have, can only mean that we have more options to really tease out what that question is. Now, what is that question? That is dependent on your initial focus. And, and for us, if you look at from my perspective, my focus has been on. There's a lot of singling going on in biology, and, and I, you know, I would love to say, you know, Arun, this is the magic signal, man, and I would say that is the main ticket. The reality is, I don't want to underplay the complexity of the biology, so I'm just going to say, this is our contribution to that. This is our contribution to not just the field from a scientific perspective, but I want that scientific perspective to mean something today. Every time we don't apply some of the great work that we've 
doing is another day where patients are requiring transplantation for their heart. Every day is another time when heart failure patients are not receiving cutting-edge therapy because that's all we have. That's all we have. And my point about doing the biology is to better understand what is robust and safe for patients like we have it for our current medical cabinet of drugs and devices for patients. How can we now slowly bring that into an era where we're now doing, you know, genome sequencing, we're doing uh, single seek, we're doing uh, all of this amazing biology, how does it filter through? How does it improve them? And, you know, we just got to have that dialogue. I'm a, I'm a big proponent that we have to have that dialogue and engagement with non-scientists as well as within science to say, look, I can't do this myself. We got to work together on this. And I think that's those days where that one lab unless it's Langelab, I guess, but <laughs> where you have, a, <laughs> where the, the one lab is able to answer so many questions is just becoming more and more difficult because we need more and more skills. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's, a, it's a pretty lonely scientific community if we say we are trying to preclude people that we can't speak the language with. I think it's a bit tricky in their instance, but, you know, I can tell you, when I speak to my engineering colleagues, they must be thinking, what are you talking about? Man? <laughs> this is like this. <laughs> and I had this a lot of times when I initially you're talking about, you know, thinking what my understanding was biologically and clinically of electrophysiology is very different from an electro uh, electrical engineer. So I'm learning. I think we're all learning. But in answer to your question, I think um, we will always require two pockets of scientists. And the more cross-fertilization leads on, uh, this being my own experience and having seen it in Langelab as well, that leads on to novel ideas by itself. Yeah, I think, you know, the a big driver of innovation in, in many cases is just taking two or more disparate fields and taking the cutting edge tech from those fields and combining them, putting them together and seeing what shakes out. And I think you've kind of taken the lead on that, combining the iPS cell technology, as you're talking about with all the single cell seek and genomics, and now this monitoring tech, which is, you know, the AI element and the, and the, the diagnostic monitoring. So, you know, this is a stem cell show. So we're going to have to circle back to the stem cells now, ultimately. It's a bit late. But um, how, how are you applying all these? How are you integrating this? How are you applying your monitoring? Or are you applying your, your monitoring technology to this kind of iPS cell disease modeling approach to cardiovascular disease? Yeah, so uh, I, like I said, I am interested in inherited cardiac diseases. Uh, and I'm interested in particular in modeling those inherited cardiac diseases from uh, an electrophysiological perspective. Like I said, the rationale for the physiological understanding, I've made that case to say that, you know, I want to better understand those sort of uh, initiation points. But, you know, if I look at my sort of schema of the cardiomyopathies, for example. So if I if I take that, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common form of Mendelian inherited heart disease. You know, it affects 0.2% of the global population. 
uh, it's autosomal dominant, and it's mainly found in one of these 23 cardiac sarcomere protein genes, okay? Now, with that said, it, HCM, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, was the first of the cardiomyopathies to be attributed a genetic etiology. I mean, 50% of HCM cases are attributable to a specific disease-causing gene. And what's interesting about that is, okay, a lot of people have said about the mechanistic imparts of that, that myofibril contractility functions, impaired calcium sensitivity, myocardial fibrosis, all of that is a milieu of factors that allow us to have this problem. What is the problem? And I'll tell you what the problem is. The clinical phenotype hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is variable, ranging from lifelong asymptomatic forms to dyspnea on exertion or early sudden cardiac death. And I've seen enough grants, Daylon, to actually say, that's the first thing people pick up on. They say, oh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sudden cardiac death. Hmm. Okay, now the reality of the situation is it is the most common cause of sudden cardiac death in individuals younger than 35 years. Okay. But frequently, those who are, asymp are totally asymptomatic. Okay. But if you take some of the registry data that we have, there appears to be an overall accumulating mortality of roughly about 1% to 2% per year for these sort of uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients. And all of this is from either single-center or multi-center registry data. And what I was trying to understand is, there are particular points where we're saying, well, if you have a risk, what is that risk? Because that has management implications clinically. And what I mean by that is, are you going to need a defibrillator or not? Okay. And let's just be honest there. That is not the single uh, only therapy available, but that's the sort of pinnacle of device therapy that we have. Is it effective? Yes, it is. But is it effective for everyone? No, it's not. You know, the quality of life with a defibrillator isn't easy. Um, there are a lot of shocks which are um, essentially we haven't been able to better understand when appropriate or inappropriate shocks happen. Majority of the cases it happens appropriately. But because we don't know much about the, the whole concept, of how the underlying genetic uh, predominances of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy happen, we can't really say much about, well, the device should work because the device is just that. It's an umbrella which is there to prevent sudden cardiac death. When it happens, when did you get abnormalities, we don't really know because it's a multifactorial disease. And it goes back to my sort of pet gripe here, the prospect of genetic testing for risk prediction remains a rather mute topic. I mean, we're a stem cell program here. And the initial analysis within large families of affected patients in single centers attempted to almost implicate the possibility of some mutations being associated with more what we they call, um, you know, the term is clearly wrong, malignant course with a higher risk of sudden death than a progressive heart failure. We, we really should be honest there and say we are not clear on those particular paradigms um, as of yet. There are certain very strong associations 
And one of those associations that I particularly was interested in was the troponin T gene. The other gene that was of particular interest to us is the PRKAG2 gene. All of these are sort of interesting because it allows us to have an insight to say, what are we going to do with these patients if it is positive? And what are the implications of that? Now, what we did and what I was really initiating for them is to use that as a modeling technique and to use what are our options there? Can we give a better understanding of what are the mechanistic signaling cues using human IPSL cardiomyocytes as a cue with all the, um, you know, the pitfalls that befall using human IPSL. I think, you know, you've covered a lot of it in the podcast previously. But I think it's, you know, it's the best that we have in vitro currently. And essentially, it's really made a lot of strides from some of the early mouse developmental studies that we have. And so what's interesting from a cardiac development and in vitro system for arrhythmogenesis in this genetic background it's really opened up some particular signaling cues that keep coming again and again and again. And what we've done, and what I've certainly tried to do here, is to say, what does that mean for therapy? And my biggest focus was essentially to utilize uh, drug discovery and using a joint model of the transcriptomic and proteomic outlines from all of this using some of our genetic engineering perturbates to verify and to manipulate how those signaling cascades are affected to come to some sort of a rationale to say, well, we are coming up with possible candidates of targets, but you know what? There are pretty much some drugs out there already in the market, which we have not registered, which may have these signaling perturbations in mind. And it was through that uh, we just finished a interesting trial where just using that uh, system of taking someone's IPS, developing personalized drug for them, and utilizing that in this context, we were able to show some pretty defining clinical outputs. I can't say too much, Elon, because it's coming out, uh, and I want an invite back. That's why I can't say too much. But in essence, that's essentially what was interesting there is how do we even register our next generation of drugs, right? And and it was interesting for me, in particular, uh, from the, uh, the AMP uh, kinase perspective, you know, it, it's a highly conserved serine protein kinase. How does that affect energy metabolism in the myocytes? How do we regulate that? And it was interesting to show that there are already some drugs that we were able to repurpose using this, already known in the cardiovascular field, but not known to perturb these signaling uh, moieties. And that was interesting to me to show that we actually show some clinical benefit. Hmm. So, Dr. Shakur, this has been exceptionally informative. It's it's really refreshing to see someone who's you know kind of as in, interdisciplinary as you are, right? I mean, that's kind of the the really the push towards the next generation of scientific training is to be able to integrate these different disciplines, different expertise, and I think you exemplify that 
really well. But before we let you go, though, we're going to ask you a, a couple more questions just to get to know you a little bit better, you know, just so our, our listeners can get to know Dr. Shakur as a, as a person, as a scientist. So, so if you had to think of the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now, what do you, what would that be? You know, I've been thinking about this and you know, I really feel the field is just coming to grips of the whole concept of mechanotransduction. And I think in particular for us, uh, this whole field of how bioengineering and in particular, some really nice papers that came out over the last six months on how just simple extracellular matrix that we just take for granted, we put the cells on and we think, oh, they're all the same, has great implications on the biological signaling in itself, I will. I find very intriguing. It sort of gives you a different perspective as we're going to another extreme of single cell everything. I almost feel that we need to come back a bit. I'm on. I'm with you on this, Daylon. That you know, unless you show me a million cells, I'm really not sure, <laughs> right? So I, I want to come bring us back here and say we are the sum of a lot of individual parts. And I think the whole concept of mechanotransduction is something that we haven't taken note of. We don't really understand. Okay, one cell, two cells, three cells. But the last time I checked, the organ was made of many cells. So unless we get to that point, that's uh, you know some really fundamental great work going on on how different formats of extracellular matrix affect the interaction of the cell on each other we don't have the quantitative ability to actually tease that out yet, but I think we're going to get there. And I, I'm really excited. Some of um, some of the uh, people that have really had great experience here in MIT are working on those um, physiological aspects. I'm really excited to say that we can maybe tease and drill down on a cellular level. I'm really excited about that. So I hope, you know, the next few years we can really uh, update you on that. Yeah, and I think it's phenomenal to be kind of at a location where you are in kind of Kendall Square and the, the heart of Cambridge because, you know, you can kind of see those technologies as they emerge. I mean, you've been able to, to train at those locations, and I think that's absolutely phenomenal. And so finally, I guess the last thing we'll ask is if your lab, God forbid, does catch fire and you have the chance to grab a single thing, just one thing on your way out, what would that be? It would have to be my laptop. I think that is the common and probably the most important thing after your life to get out in a fire. <laughs> so I think, I think I'm not alone in that. So technically the answer is yourself and close second <laughs> yeah. would be your laptop. Yeah, well, you're not alone there. I'm the same. I'm the same. But what Arun will tell you nowadays is that the kids have everything in the cloud. I just learned that too, Dr. Shakur. So don't feel bad about yourself. You're doing great work over there. I hope you keep it up. And you're going to have to come back and talk to us about that little story you hinted at. We can't wait to hear about that. Thanks again for this chat. It's been really illuminating and a lot of fun. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of our show, a delightful chat with Ramin Shakur. He really, you know, gave us an insight not just into how we're using iPS cells to understand cardiac development and disease, but also, I think, gave us a lot about, you know, starting a company. I think 
in the words of Irv Weissman, uh, if no one's out there doing it, you do it yourself. I think Ramin took those words to heart, literally. He went out there and made a tech that's changing the world, flattening the healthcare space. Great chat. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. 